This is episode 14 of Talking With, Brian Lamb's conversation with historian Richard Norton Smith. It starts after this. How much greed do you have in your soul? Boy, you know, I don't want to compliment myself, but I honestly do believe God knows I have shortcomings uh, and failings, but I, I, I don't think greed is one of them. I mean, I think I'm... I think greed is, in the end, the most dangerous of all human lusts because it's so basic. Where do you see it in today's society? Oh, gosh. I see it everywhere. Um, See, this is going to uh, pigeonhole me. Uh, but in but in this case, uh, I mean, Fox News is a classic example. You know, whether you believe it or not, fine. Fascinating thing is, conservatism, as I sort of understand it, is first and foremost almost reverent about tradition. It is protective of tradition. It is keenly and often bravely willing to stand up for traditional values, however defined. Money lust is just the opposite. It's it, it will it will coarsen the culture. It will lower the standards. It will sensationalize and exploit any situation, no matter how crude or coarse or dangerous it may be ultimately to our culture and our politics to for clicks or commercial sales it, it's the it's the it's greed as defined by classic lust for wealth that is the most revolutionary and in many ways the most corrosive of the very values the very standards the very useful reticences that I associate with classic conservatism. Restraint. Voluntary restraint. Um, good manners. You know, the old, the old notion that, quite frankly, when someone died, if you couldn't say something nice about them, then you were silent. But why name... One operation, Fox News, and, and when you're talking about this, and I, well, I, and I do not, I do not for a moment mean to suggest that that they invented this. The Murdoch Press, though, let's broaden the focus. All right, the Murdoch Press in Britain, on the one hand, trumpets itself quite often as as the as the champion of traditional values working class traditional values um, the practical consequences though of eavesdropping on people on breaking down any a kind of traditional respect for individual privacy, of exploiting 
for gain, the private emotions, the private pain, the private fill-in-the-blank of people. Um, because it will sell. Because it will sell. It's what's in it for me are the most dangerous words, it seems to me, in a democracy. But so many of the media companies that you don't name, people that you, your your favorite uh, William Paley made fortunes off the media. But you know what? Selling. But they also had, at their best, they had a sense in the early days of the medium that there was a public obligation in some ways to give back. Because the airwaves were ostensibly public property, so you had elements that didn't draw big ratings, but were you had CBS reports. You had a mall and the night visitors. You know, an opera commissioned by NBC. Nobody thought it would make any money. It, now, granted, you could say the economics of the industry were such that they could afford to do, but CBS Playhouse, much of what passes for the so-called golden age of television, and there are a lot of people who will tell you that we're living through the golden age of television. The difference is you have to pay for it. You know, it, it, we, it's as if we've reverted 60 years. When television, no one wants to say this, when television was brand new, it had a very small audience. And, and the, the demographics of that audience in 1950, because people could afford television sets, and they were probably disproportionately on the East Coast, the, Democrats, the demographics of that audience are probably not dissimilar to the demographics of an HBO or, you know, similar today. In other words, t commercial television has, by and large, been left as a mass audience phenomenon. Quality television with great scripts and, and great stories and great acting has migrated from the commercial but free arena to pay television. It's the equivalent in a 21st century sense of the exclusive, undemocratic early days of television. I mean, in other words, what I'm saying is the first golden age of television unfolded against a backdrop when television itself was something of an elitist instrument. It, it, it didn't really become a mass um, factor. For example, in news, I mean, classically, uh, the Kennedy presidency and the years thereafter, I looked upon the, the, the man on the moon. I mean, the 60s were the era when television became, when we, when television, in many ways, it's the real golden age of television news because television realized the vision of the water cooler nation. People sat around their sets watching the same things so that the next day 
they could engage in a conversation speaking the same language and in, in numbers that had never been imagined before. That, I would submit, we've lost. And I think it's a huge loss and a, and a real danger to, to American democracy. However, once the public had an opportunity to watch other than three television networks, they went away very quickly. I, I don't dispute that for a moment. And, and, and what I'm saying is I'm the first to acknowledge that I'm uh, practicing uh, a kind of, um, many people would say, warped nostalgia. And indeed, it seems undemocratic. The irony, the paradox is, what I'm arguing is, the seemingly undemocratic formula whereby three networks fostered a national conversation to be replaced by the cacophony of, of, of instruments of communication. And then the web, where by rights, all of us have access to more information than human beings have ever had in the history of the world. I, I totally agree with you. I totally concede the point. There's a, there's a, the problem is something called, you know, human nature and human behavior. And this instrument, these instruments, that we were told would foster a common conversation, have in fact produced fragmentation, cynicism as a, as a way of life, um, intense destructive polarization in our politics. And something else. It's funny, I just heard this this week. And I, and I and immediately I said, that's right, I know it. I can't prove it. I don't have statistics. But, and I, I don't even know, you know, where I heard it. But it makes perfect sense. Someone was talking about the distorting nature of social media. That, um, and I'm sure, people on Capitol Hill, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm writing a book about Gerald Ford. Gerald Ford treated the mail as if it was sacred. He spent two hours, as a congressman, he spent two hours a day answering his mail. And every letter, they had tiny staffs, they had three, three people when he first came to Congress. And with those, every letter got answered within 24 hours, if humanly possible. Okay. Um, now, undoubtedly, there was something distorting even then. The, the nature that people cared about something enough to express an opinion or ask a favor or register a protest, that very emotion sets it apart from the vast majority of people around you, understandably. But it's, it's, a, it's a phenomenon that is greatly exacerbated by the nature of social media, which which disproportionately channels anger um, and, and, and often vicious anger. Um, it's, it's when you do Washington Journal and you take calls. And I, I don't know, but I mean, you know, I've done the show a number of occasions and there are days when you get Nothing but 
wonderful calls, and there are days when, having nothing to do with whatever your area of expertise may be, people are riled up because of something that happened in the news the next day. But you know, you know in your gut that this is not a representative sampling of public opinion. It's, it's, it's angry people who care enough to vote um, and to register their anger um, with a call to a call-in show. Or, you know, um, um, and, and then again, the, the, then finally, there is that element which um, so we sort of all know exists. There's that, that quality about the Internet that permits isolated people in isolation to give voice to the worst, um, to, the, to the whatever is sour. Um, uh, or rancid. And um, why do we pay attention to it? Well, most people don't. I would argue that there's a disproportionate number of people in cable TV who do. Yeah, but when you have a nation of 327 million... And Mr. Paley never did. (laughs) He didn't have to. Well, I know, see? But but I'm not sure he would even if... You know, I mean, you know... uh, they were elitists, all right? Once in a while, you know, elitism is a dirty word. But, but, but the founders understood. There's a reason why classic government, successful government, combines elements of monarchy, aristocracy, and pure democracy. As long as you brought it up. Yeah. <laughs> <coughs> founders. The founders. Let, let me just pose this to you. The founders didn't care about anybody but white males who owned I, property. But you see, there's the genius. I will say, look, the real miracle in Philadelphia, the is, real miracle in Philadelphia was that 55 white men who were not even particularly representative of their stratified society, nevertheless, whatever their intentions at the time, created a system, wrote a document, gave birth to a government <clears throat> that was capable <clears throat> over time, not because people passed a law or someone issued a decree, more often because people took to the streets and demanded change. But nevertheless, you know, FDR talked about a continuing revolution that since the beginning since the founding we've been engaged in a continuing mostly peaceful revolution um, you know the notion of a country that has never become but is always in the act of becoming now someone say that's a Pollyannish view of American history but as an optimist you know, I look at the founding, and I see that as the real miracle of Philadelphia, um, which also explains why the civil rights movement connected, you know, in a way that it did, and why um, even now, you know, when it's easy to despair, um, I like to, 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 to be more optimistic. 
So let me ask you some short questions about presidents. Who's the smartest person that's ever been president of the United States? Okay. See, the problem with that is how do you measure intelligence? I'm just asking you for yeah, your... I mean, no, I mean, there are people... There, for, for example, political genius, that's a form of smartness, you know? I'd look at Lincoln. I'd look at FDR. Um, I actually look at Washington, who was never thought of as a political figure, and that's part of his genius, I would argue. Who um, was the most religious, not in, not in appearance, but in fact, from what you know? Well, if you think of religion as a quest, um, as opposed to the practice of a creed, I mean, certainly people like James Garfield uh, were, 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 was deeply religious. His years of president. See? I, he, he was only president for six months because he was assassinated in the summer of 1881. And by the way, he's a classic illustration of, you know, never write anyone off. Until recently, the thought that one, let alone three, first-rate, best-selling uh, works on Garfield would appear, um, I think most people would have said you were crazy. Um, and yet, you know, that's the case. And it's, uh, you know... It illustrates, again, there are all of these unexplored, um, you know, hallways of history. Um, the Gilded Age, I think, is, is the period in American history that is most neglected. I think all of those presidents who, um, you know, Thomas Wolfe, not Tom Wolfe, but Thomas Wolfe in the 1930s, the young novelist, um, described him as the lost Americans. And it's true. It's, it's all these kind of post-Civil War generals with beards uh, or mutton chop whiskers. I mean, you sort of tell them apart by facial hair, uh, but you don't really think much more. And it's, it's as if there's a wonderful line, Richard White's new uh, History of the Gilded Age for the Oxford American History Series. He refers to those years as flyover country for historians. <laughs> well, that's that's true. But the president's uh, test stop uh, stop people on the street corner and ask them to name a president between 1865 and 1900. Religion. <clears throat> you name Garfield. Who else? Well, of course, Woodrow Wilson famously was the son of a preacher. Um, but was he who, very religious had, himself? Yeah, who had... There's some debate over how practical... He was certainly a, a fervent Calvinist who believed that what he was doing... See, when you say religion, too, there, again, I don't mean to split hairs, but for some people, it's intensely personal. They are walking with God. And uh, like Wilson, they tend to identify themselves with the Almighty and to believe that they are doing the Lord's work. If you go to Plains, Georgia any Sunday, still... Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter's in the church. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Carter is certainly among... But, but there is someone who um, I think we would all recognize 
whatever people believe about organized religion, um, they look at President Carter and they see a man who lives his faith, uh, who practices his faith, and it's a faith that is less uh, ritualistic um, than it is about making the world a better place. Richard Norton Smith is an American historian and author. You can listen to more interviews with him by searching his name in the video library at cspan.org.